The text I pray the Lord be pleased to speak to us from is the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Gospel of John, chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. I want to speak today on the healing at the pool of Bethesda. John's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to be reading from the authorized version. After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Apostle John included in his gospel only seven miracles. Now, the truth of the matter is, there's actually eight miracles recorded. The eighth miracle is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, John confines miracles performed in the ministry of Jesus before the crucifixion to the number seven. In fact, that's quite interesting, just that number itself. At the conclusion of the gospel, John makes this statement. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, of which, if they should be written, everyone, I suppose, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. With that many miracles from which to draw from, isn't it interesting, the seven that John chose? And even more interesting is the number seven. It was strategic on the part of John, of which, of course, was being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. Seven is the number for perfection, completion. But the number seven is more interesting when you understand the purpose of miracles. What is the purpose of a miracle? What was the reason that Jesus came doing these miraculous things? things. John does not use the word miracle. You won't find it, at least in the Greek language. You might find an English translation that uses it, but in the original, it is not to be found. No, John calls these miraculous events signs and wonders. Sometimes he just simply calls it a sign. And there's a reason for that, because in the mind of the apostle. He saw the miraculous 
healings and other events of Jesus of supernatural, extraordinary power as a sign. And what is a sign? Well, a sign is something that points to something outside of itself. It's an indicator giving direction. As I was making my way from the Metroplex this morning, I looked for signs that pointed towards Graham. And there were some signs pointed outside of itself to my destination. And so every one of these seven signs or miracles are pointing to something outside of itself. They are merely illustrations pointing us to Jesus Christ and His nature, who He is, and what His mission was, what He was here to accomplish. And strategically, this apostle chooses these seven, including this one here we have just read, illustrating who Jesus Christ is and what He was here to do. In particular, I believe this miracle illustrates the truth that Christ is God. He's deity, veiled in flesh, and that He can give eternal life to whomever He chooses. In fact, that's the context of this miracle. When the religious leaders discover that it was Jesus who had performed this miracle on the Sabbath, they were irate and challenged Him. You see, it violated their puny, silly, man-made traditions regulating the Sabbath. And they challenged Him. And Jesus said these very words in verse 21, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom He will. Meaning, giving life to whom He desires. This is the very point. Interestingly, there were many, a multitude of sick people around this pool. Five porches full, says John. But how many did Jesus heal? Only one. And as soon as He healed this man, He disappeared. He suddenly left and was not to be found. Why just one? Why so exclusive? Because it pointed to something. It tells us something about Christ that He is sovereign even over our salvation, that He reigns, and that salvation is of God completely. That is the whole point of the statement Jonah makes in the belly of that great fish. Salvation is of the Lord. And He selects this one man, heals only him, and then He leaves. He can give life to whom He wills. Some people find that difficult. They find that troubling. Rather, they ought to look at it in a much different way. They ought to see it this way, and there would be no bickering over this thought, that God gives and dispenses salvation to whom He chooses. It is this very point. Is this, He's not constrained to save. He does so willingly. But you will never put Him under obligation to save you. You cannot get God in a position of debt to you. You cannot perform and live and act in such a way that you obligate God to you. Not as a sinner, not as a saint. Our prayers don't obligate God to us. Your goodness, your service unto Him does not in any way make Him a debtor to you. No, He is free to do as He pleases. To save whom He desires. To bless as He sees fit. 
He is the Lord God. And therefore, for to be saved by grace, He must be free to save us by grace. He must be under no obligation. Now, perhaps you've already surmised the text and the direction that seems that I may be going, and you've come to the conclusion, well, he's going to preach an evangelistic message today. I, being already saved, will not get much out of this message. Well, my dear friends, you would have come to a wrong conclusion if that is your deduction today. No, this text, although it does serve well, to speak directly to the heart of you who may be here today not yet converted. It is also also as appropriate to the saved man as it is to the lost person. You see, the gospel is not just for the unbeliever. It's also for the believer. One of the grossest mistakes made by modern evangelicalism is to believe that the gospel is merely for the lost man, the, the unlearned man, and, and once he is converted, then you graduate beyond the gospel and you go into postgraduate studies. You go deeper into the Word of God. How can you go deeper than the gospel? Colossians, the Apostle Paul says, it is the very depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How much knowledge does God have? He's omniscient. All knowledge. My dear friend, I doubt you can plumb that deep. No, you don't graduate beyond the gospel. It is the life, meat, and drink of the believer. It is our solace, our comfort, our strength that Jesus Christ came, died on a cross, rose three days later. It's that very message that is the source of our life today. You will never go beyond the gospel. From Revelation to Genesis and Genesis to Revelation, the whole counsel of God is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Graduate beyond it? No. No, this message is for all. And if you are a Christian, I'm asking you to attend and ask God to help your heart and your spirit of attention to hear because I believe He has something to say to you. And my dear friend, you who are yet to be saved, and I say yet because I have great hope in God's mercy, yet to be saved, oh, I plead with you at this very moment, Don't tune me out. Don't say, well, here's another man with a tie and a coat on quoting from the Bible things that don't make sense to me. No, no. Please listen. I want to warn you that while I'm preaching to you, there'll be another preacher preaching to you as well. Satan himself, the master of deceit, will be lying to you. Telling you don't pay attention to this man. He has nothing to say that's relevant to you. He can't relate to you. He doesn't know anything about you. Don't pay attention. It's all a relic of history. It's archaic. It's no good. It has no bearing upon your life today. My friend, I plead in the name of Christ. Don't believe that lie that spawned in hell's fire. Don't believe it. Listen. God has something to say and do for you. I want to direct your attention to the man himself here that receives this miraculous healing. Look at verse 5. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. Thirty-eight years this man was in this condition. Handicapped. Could not walk. We know by 
the word of the Lord Jesus to this man later in the chapter, verse 14, that he was handicapped by sin. By sin itself. Listen to what Jesus does. He seeks him out a second time. Finds him in the temple. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, verse 14, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. In other words, the ailment that this man had for these 38 years was a result of some personal sin that he had committed. Handicapped by sin. I think this is one of the reasons why this man is selected. Some of the others were there not because they had sinned and therefore were being under some kind of judgment in consequence of their sin, but this man, no, no, he is a perfect representation of the lost condition of mankind. All of us have been handicapped by sin. In every area of life, doesn't matter what the issue is, whatever's confronting you, difficulty, problems, issues, struggles, afflictions. My dear friend, everyone can be traced back to the fall of man in the garden, to rebellion against God. Now, I want to be quick and clear here to be sure that no one misunderstands me. I'm not saying that if you are sick today, if you have some kind of physical ailment, that it's the result of your personal sin. No, not at all. But it is the result of the sin of Adam and Eve. All physical affliction and pain in this world is the result of that act of disobedience in the garden. Before their fall, their bodies were in physical condition called, I would say, called perfect. They were excellent specimens of health. There was nothing they could... I think that could bother them physically. I think they were in a perfect state of well-being, perpetuated by God Himself. But the moment they chose to rebel against God, sin devastated their bodies so that now every little baby born, even the one that's being rocked by his father at this moment, even that poor child, the moment it's born, it's born to die. Corruption is already working its woe and havoc within these bodies. All physical ailments are a result of the sin of mankind, but not just physical issues, financial issues, relational issues, emotional, psychological. Every problem of mankind is owed to the problem of sin. And the problem of man is that he doesn't understand his own problem. He doesn't see that sin is the very, the very platform and foundation of all of his woes, all of his issues, all of his pain, all of his torment. doesn't matter if you're a Christian here or not. Sin is the, is the, is the fountainhead of all of the struggles of life. Why are all the relational problems Why are you having difficulty with some person who's close to you? Well, the problem is we're all self-centered. And that is the result of the fall. We all have this natural gravitation to self-glory, self-protection, self-exertion, and vaunting ourselves and putting ourselves out there. And that creates conflict. Even in the best of relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, bosses and employees... All relational issues find the stem, the root, in sin. Intellectual, 
financial. It doesn't matter what the problem is. Man is handicapped by sin. And politics is not going to solve the solution. Politics is as corrupted by sin as any other facet of human life in existence. And here we are today trying to put our hope in some political party. My dear friends, we don't realize how handicapped we are. It's beyond the power of man. And that's why this man was also not just handicapped, he was helpless. There was nothing he could do to change his situation. Listen to what he says in verse 7 when Jesus asked him if he would be made whole. The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man. In other words, I have no help. I'm completely helpless and no one else, no other resource when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I'm coming, another steppeth down before me. There was the tradition at this particular pool. That's why he was there and others like him. That when an angel would come and stir the waters, the waters began to just unseemly begin to boil. The first person in was healed. He says, I have no legs that work, no power. And so I just dragged myself with my arms and elbows, but another man across the pool. He's got an affliction, but it doesn't affect his legs. His legs are strong, and the moment the water's troubled, he can just simply dive in. I'm stuck here. I'm completely helpless. Dear friend, do you realize how helpless your sin has made you? This is the problem of the sinner. He has no cog- he's not cognizant, he's not aware of how deep the problem of sin is. There is absolutely nothing you will ever do, nor in your past, nor in your future, that will ever make God's smile come upon you and be accepted by Him. You're completely helpless. You cannot reverse your sin. You cannot change the debt you owe. The payment is too great. Eternity is not even enough for sinners in hell to pay for it. That's why there's no release. Did you realize that? Hell is perpetual, unending, because the debt they owe to God's holy justice is so infinite that not even can they pay it in full. Helpless to overcome. Try as hard as you may. The harder you try, the tighter the grip of sin. Have you not found it to be like that? You try to change your behavior. Modify your actions. You try to turn over the proverbial new leaf. How has that worked out for you? How long did the promise last? How long did the reform continue? Paul talks about a man who knew that he needed God and tried to reform himself. He says, the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Have you discovered that? Is that your plight? Is that your problem today? The more you try to do good, the more you try to obey your parents, the more you try to appease God and do what you think would make Him happy with you, the more sin's grip on your life becomes more evident. Have you come to the point that you've discovered that there's a law in your members, in your body, warring against all of God's will and what God deems as right? bringing you into captivity to the law of sin. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Cries out this man. There is no deliverance in your own power. You're completely helpless. The more you try. Some of you are here today because you think this might help. 
this place, these people, the preacher, the pastor here, these people are good people. You see something in them that you admire, you wish you had. You think maybe being around them will help you. Associate with them. Associate with a better crowd. Maybe it'll lift up my own standards. But how has that worked? There's nothing, my dear friend. You're as helpless as this man to find his way into the pool of healing. And you are lost in your sins. Nothing you can do to can change that. The debt you owe to God is far too much, too great. My question is, do you feel your hopelessness? Even as a Christian here today, do you think that I believe that if I just learn how to publicly speak and put together a wonderful outline, that I can do something here that can change your forever? <laughs> That's sheer nonsense. Even as a Christian uh, preaching over 30 years, I know at this moment precisely, I feel it deeply, that there's nothing in my words that will ever do that can change your life. Nothing in me. I have no power in and of myself. And just preaching the Bible is not going to do it, even though it's the Word of God. No, we need a power far greater than this. We need the very God who inspired this book to come and breathe into your heart and to transform your life. Only God can do this. You're helpless as this poor man. But do you see it? That's the question. Because those who do not see it are never helped. No one has ever been saved that didn't come to the point of hopelessness in themselves. Have you gotten to that point? Some of you were reared in church. Your conscience has been well trained so that you'd live a good life as we deem goodness. You're a moral person. You're a compliant in personality. It's your temperament. I want to ask you a very important question. Please listen. Have you ever come to the place where you realized your own burden of sin and you found it utterly impossible to please God one iota? If not, you are lost in your sins. I don't care how good you are, how compliant you are. I don't care how your friends, even the church, this church, applauds you and your morality. My dear friend, you have yet to come to the place of helplessness. And no one is ever saved until they come to that position where they know they cannot save themselves. Those who feel good about themselves have too low a standard. That's the problem. You think that your righteousness is sufficient and that God will find it sufficient. How laughable and how blasphemous to think that God's standard would be as low as yours, that God's goodness would be on the same level that He would accept your goodness. Do you realize the insult, the attack on the cross of Jesus Christ, that fault is, and how it will damn you? Please, Plead with you in the name of our dear Savior. Come to the place. May God open your eyes to see that the weight of sin will bury you, crush you. And it already has. He didn't come to save the righteous. For when we were yet without strength, said the Apostle Paul, in due time Christ died for who? The ungodly. 
Did you hear that? Without strength. It means powerless, completely helpless. Have you come to that place? Do you know that there's nothing you can do? Pray in your prayers will not save you. Join in this church. Being baptized are all chaff and the wind will drive it away one day when you stand before God. He died for ungodly people. Who are the ungodly? What does it mean to be ungodly? Well, let me ask you another question. What does it mean to be godly? Well, it's simple. It means godlike. When we say he's a godly man, we mean he's godlike. She's a godly woman. She's like God in some ways, in some measure. To be ungodly means you're not like God in any form or shape or capacity. Who did he die for? He commendeth. He demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Sinners. Christ died for us. No, he didn't come to save good people. He came to save those who knew they were absolutely not good and totally helpless to do anything about it. That's the condition we find this poor man. And I want to remind you that this miracle is a sign illustrating you. But I want now to direct your attention to the Savior. To the Savior. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? First, I would have you to see that Jesus is unsolicited here. This poor man did not hear about Jesus and decided, I will send a relative or a friend or some messenger for me. And as the centurion did, that Jesus would come and speak the word and heal his servant. No, there is no record that this man did that because it did not happen. This, this event happens unsolicited. Jesus comes to him without any request from this poor man. And dear friend, I want you to realize, please listen, that that's the beauty of a worship service like this. That when we come and gather, Jesus is here. Whether we solicit Him or not, whether we acknowledge Him or not, He is here. He said, if two or three come together in, in, in My name, I am in their midst. That means He's here this morning. He's in this very room. He's as real as I am. In fact, He's more real. Even though our eyes cannot see Him, our ears may not hear His voice. My dear friends, don't let that surprise you, nor deceive you into believing He's not here. He's more real than any of us. We all spring from Him. The physical, the material springs from the spiritual and the invisible. God is here, and He's here to do something for us. He's here to touch you. He's here to speak to you. He's here to direct you. He's here to bless you, to help you. Isn't that the marvel? When we come to this place, we come with the anticipation that we can meet with God because God will be here to meet with us. And you never know. It's an awesome thing. Often just like in this poor man's condition. Here he was thinking it was a normal routine day. Nothing was going to happen. He had no idea when his eyes opened up that morning that Jesus would come and he'd be healed. How many of you came with the anticipation that God was going to be here and He was going to meet with you? Probably you just went through the routine. 
And that's not a bad habit to have, to get up on Sunday and be ready to go to church. It's a good thing to do. We ought to do it. But I wonder how many times we come to this place with little to no anticipation that Christ is here to do something on our behalf. Listen to what the Word of God says. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect towards Him. He's here to do something for you. He often comes unsolicited. We don't call on Him as we ought to, but He's nonetheless there for the believer He that is. One of the most precious promises in this entire book for me is this. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, said the Lord. He's always with us. And dear friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, my hope is that Jesus' presence, which is here, that you will become sensible to that presence. It's something of a frightening sense of God's glory and holiness will come upon you. That you would have something like Isaiah happen to him when he saw God high and lifted up in the temple. He said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I'm undone. Oh, that God would come to you right now. Even though you may not desire Him. Maybe you've not even asked for Him. I want to give you hope today. God is compassionate. He's compassionate to the sinner. This man didn't ask for Him. He didn't seek Him out. Why does the Lord choose this man? I don't know. I can't give you any dogmatic answer. But I can tell you this. I'd venture to answer that it's probably because He's in the worst condition of them all. There was nothing this poor man could do. He was totally hopeless. Nothing he could do. He's a perfect specimen, example of me before I was saved. You want to know something strange? I know some of you already think I'm strange. You don't need any more more evidence. But, you know, I was a preacher before I got saved. I've been preaching since I was 15 years old, pastored two churches At the age of 26, I was finally truly converted. You see, you can be a member of a church. You can even preach. You can be a deacon. You can do all the right things, but be lost and on your way to hell. Because there's nothing even religion cannot save us. It cannot transform the heart. But God can, and He's compassionate and He's merciful. I remember that morning when I was praying. I I actually was praying for a couple of weeks. I'd get up early. I I, I had left the ministry. I had turned in my ordination. I knew that I was lost. God had convicted me of my sins. I knew I'd been a hypocrite, a farce. About six months after that event, I was praying one morning, and here was my sinner's prayer. Lord, you can't forgive me of my sins because they're too great. I've been a hypocrite. All of my life. And hypocrisy was that one sin that you strove against the, the hardest with great vehemence. You came against it. You're too holy. I've got to go to hell and pay for the things that I've done. And dear friend, I'm so thankful that I can tell you with all certainty, God is compassionate that He took pity on a person He had no need, who didn't even believe He could be compassionate. 
I didn't even believe God could love me. I thought I was too bad. I believe He could love you, but I didn't believe He could love me. That's how deeply pride had set itself up in my heart. And all of a sudden, something happened in that room. I can't explain it to you. All I can tell you is God showed up. And something happened. I felt the love of God. I felt love like I'd never been loved before. Not by mother, not by father, nor anyone else in this world. Not even by my wife. This love was all-surpassing and glorious. And it filled me from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. And it literally changed me. I've never been the same since. So I'm here to tell you, you may not be looking for God. But it's very possible He's looking for you. And He's here this morning to do something in your life. Please listen to the rest of this message. Because I will help you to show you, if you'll listen, what you must do. He's compassionate. Because He's on mission. He comes to this pool on purpose. The same reason that He came to Zacchaeus in Jericho. What did he say? I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. He sought out Zacchaeus. He's here to seek out you. Why would he go through Samaria? Why does he say to his disciples, I must needs go through Samaria? When every good Jew went around the territory of Samaria on their trips to the north part of Israel or to the south part of Israel. Why does he say, I must needs go? Why does he say that? Because he had an appointment with the woman. She didn't know it who would come at the well at noon, a woman of ill repute, of fornication and adultery. He had an appointment. He was seeking to save that which was lost. And he sought her, and he found her, and he saved her. He's here to seek you. That's why he's here. God is here looking for you. And he's found you. What will you do? What will your response be? And then I direct you lastly to the salvation that our Savior brought. Look at the Lord and how He healed this man. It was quite unconventional. And what I mean by that, it's not the way in which the lame man thought he would be healed. When Jesus asked him, do you want to be well? Do you want to be made whole? His immediate thought is one singular resource. Somebody to help me get into the pool. That's what he was thinking. I can be healed if I can get somebody to assist me so that when the waters were troubled, I can be the first one in. But Jesus doesn't use the pool, does He? Not at all. He does not rely on the things that we believe will help us. He doesn't come to us in the way in which we often expect. He doesn't use the conventionality, the things that you have hoped in and trust in. He doesn't come to you in church membership. He doesn't come to you in water baptism. He doesn't come to you in your sinner's prayer. No, no, these things do not bring God to you. If you prayed and asked God to save you, it's because He'd already found you and worked that into your heart. If you were baptized as a Christian, it's because you were in obedience to the call of God. But these things don't bring God to our rescue. He doesn't need all of these things. It's not what you and I do. Again, I say, not what my hands have done. 
can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne that can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do. Not all my sighs, my prayers and tears can bear my awful load. None of these things will affect God's heart. He's already compassionate towards you. The issue is, will you let God be God? I remember a man in my church years ago, before I became a full-time evangelist, His wife was saved within the first year of our coming to the church. She was my Mary Magdalene. She was a lady truly of ill repute. God saved her. Her husband started coming because he saw such a great change in her. Week after week he would come, month after month, year after year, but never did he get saved. I counseled with him. There were times he would talk to me and say, I want to be saved. But this went on for nearly 20 years. 20 years. And when God finally saved him, when he was willing, do you know what the problem was? All those 20 years, he had expected God to save him in the way in which he had prescribed. He thought. He was not willing to yield and surrender to the Christ and His ways. My dear friend, if you're to be saved, that's exactly how. You yield to Christ. You are so in trust. You so trust Him that you don't matter what, it does not matter what methodology He uses, you know that He's your only hope. His power is from Himself. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your prayers. He doesn't need your moral reformation. The power comes from Him. He's His own self-generating power. He's omnipotent. You're impotent. He isn't. He has all the power to raise you up here today. All He has to do, speak the Word. Speak the Word. He gives hope. Look at verse 6 one more time. Look at the question Jesus asks him. Wilt thou be made whole? I know over the years I've heard the, the reasons why Jesus asked this question. Why would you be made whole? Well, he's been in this poor condition these many years. He probably doesn't really want to be made well. I don't think that's it at all. Not at all. I think this man's so hopeless that Jesus wants to engender, create hope within him. Look at his answer. The answer that he gives shows you that it had nothing to do with whether he wanted to be healed or not. It was that he doesn't believe he can be healed because of his hopeless condition, helpless condition. I have no man when the water's troubled up. We've read it before. And so the question is this morning, do you have hope? Do you believe that God can save you? Why do you sit here stone-hearted, stone-faced? My friend, your facade, does it betrays you. It It betrays the troubled heart within. Anyone with any discernment can see it about you. They know you better than I do. They know that there's something on the inside missing in you. That what's missing is that you have no hope. You've looked to everything else and everything's failed. You've even tried religion and it's failed you. Why do you think so many people turn to the cults? They're hopeless. They're grasping at any straw that comes along, even though it may not make sense. They're willing to believe a lie as long as the lie gives them some hope. Perhaps I could be saved, you think, if. 
And you think of something you can do. If I do this, if I start doing this, if I stop doing this, oh no, dear friend, your hope must be in Jesus. Do you believe He can do that this morning? I wonder how many Christians are here this day and you're in a handicapped position because of sin. Oh, you're saved. But because of rebellion, because of disobedience, you let your heart go cold and you become lax in your fellowship and communion with God and you're spiritually weakened, sapped of spiritual stamina and strength. Oh, do you have hope that He's here in this room right now to revive your heart, to give you what you need, to supply new hope, new vigor? He's here. Put your hope in Christ. How? He just merely spoke the Word. Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Who spoke these words to this man? Who was it? The same God that spoke when there was nothing made. Let there be light. And there was light. Paul says the same God who speaks into these dark hearts of ours and says, let the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ shine. And it shines. Just one word. Just one word. Wilt thou be made whole? Proves. One thing, if it proves anything, will you be made whole? Proves that He will not force someone against their will. Oh yes, Jesus saves. Sovereignly, He saves. But He does it in such a way that He doesn't do it contrary to your will. It would appear that this Word creates the desire to be healed. And this is what I know as I begin to conclude. I know God's spoken to you if there's hope birthed in your heart that yes, God can save me. Where did it come from? It didn't come from me. Listening to me didn't create that. No, no. It came from hearing another, the Spirit of God. God has spoken to you. If there's some flicker of a flame that says yes, is it possible that Jesus would save me and take pity and mercy and really change my life? I want Him to change me. I've done religion. I've prayed the prayer and I'm still the same person. I want to be transformed. Is it possible? Yes, it's possible. And there's a little hope. My friend, God's speaking to you. God's come to you. He's passing by. He's here to do something for you. Hope in Christ. Hope in Him. His Word creates hope. What is your response to Him? It is one thing and one thing only. Obedience. Obedience. Now, some would take fault with that answer. Where do I get it? I get it from verse 9. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. He did what Jesus told him to do. Some would take issue by saying, then you're including works now. You're preaching a work salvation. The man was healed because he did something. No, my friend, not at all. It's just the opposite. His obedience is the direct result of the power of God in his heart. It is a result of faith in the Word of God. Why would the man struggle to get up at all if he had no confidence or at least some faith to believe that what this man had said could come to pass? Something happened that moment. 
Something happened when Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk. If it was an average man, he would have just simply laughed and scoffed and said, well, you're crazy, you're a fool. Why do you think I'm here? I can't walk. But no, no argument, no discussion, no rebuff. He simply does it. Why? Because something in the words of Jesus caused faith to leap up within his heart. My dear friend, if you believe in Jesus, do what he tells you to do. That's all trust is. If you're sick and you're ill and you go to a physician, because of your confidence in the physician, you do what he tells you to do. It's not the medicine that heals. No, no. It's faith that the doctor knows what he's talking about. Has God spoken to you here this morning? And there's hope in your heart that your condition can change. Then obey whatever He tells you to do. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You see, dear Christian, that's where we fail, isn't it? There's where we get into trouble. Every difficulty in my life can find its root to this unbelief. Unbelief. I don't believe that God really knows better than me what's good for me. I take that upon myself. Oh, but if you would just trust in His Word today, He knows absolutely what you need. Your husband, your spouse doesn't even know the depths of your own heart. Why, you don't even your own self. How could you explain to God what you need? No! He knows you. He knows you're rising up and you're lying down. He's formed you in your mother's womb. He knows the day of your death. He knows everything about you. He knows exactly what you need. Trust Him this morning. Relinquish self-confidence. Cast it aside and leap upon Christ. Not into the dark. No, no, no. Leap into the light. For Christ is the light. I appeal to the Christian here who feels wounded or spiritually ill. Oh, trust in the Lord's Word and obey. Do what He's commanding you to do. To the one who is spiritually weak and knows not the power that you once knew. You need revival. You need God to touch you yet again here this morning. He's here to do that. Rise up and follow Him. God's Word has been proclaimed here this morning. When I ask you to forget about the sound of the voice of the messenger He has sent to you, just know this, and I say with all reverence, that my Word to you today is owned by Jesus Christ. It is His personal Word to you. And if you will hear it, it will have power in your life. May the Lord give you ears to hear. May God help you to hear. He has spoken to you. Not this poor mortal man. No, no. Christ has spoken to you. Obey Him now. Trust Him. Get up and walk. Get up and follow Him. Do what He commands you to do. Surrender. Yield yourself. Oh, Lord, would You give these people ears to hear and faith to respond that they might obey You. In Jesus' name, Amen. And Amen. Let's pray.
as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. This is not a manipulative altar call. I just want to one more time say to you, obey God and leave all the consequences to Him. He will not fail you. He will bring you into that which you cannot even imagine. I'm going to pray that God give you the grace to obey Him. Father, thank You for this miracle that preaches to us that You take pity and You take pity upon the worst of the worst. The worst condition, the worst ailment, the worst sinner. And You can forgive them. Lord, I think in this room, it's not that someone thinks themselves to be the worst sinner that is the problem. It's that they think they're okay. That they're good enough. Forgive us of such blasphemy. There's none good. No, not one. The only good in us is what You have done. Please let this person see that the worst sinner is the one that doesn't see their need. But those who see their sins as they really are and believes You forgive much and they will love much. Work now, I pray. Saint and sinner alike, do what You want to do. I know You're doing something. I know You're here. Unsolicited, and yet, Lord, we even pray that You would help us to believe even what we've asked for today. In Jesus' name, Amen.